This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. To the readers, Karamazov. Um, we are back with our final episode of season one. We are, as always, your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Friedrich Picha, and I'm Soren Rearguard. We are not joined tonight by usual conspirator Karl Bookmarks. He's off writing his next great work. He's become fascinated by the revolutionary potentials of ice cream, um, and he's hard at work. I think he's about a thousand pages into. Hagen das Kapital. Uh, so we'll check in with him when season two starts and see how that's going for him. Um, this is, as I just said, the final episode of season one of our show. We've really enjoyed it. We'll be back in a few months with season two. We're going to do some tinkering and get some things lined up to do that. But we are finishing off our season on what I what I like to think of as a bit of a high note, which is the really superlative Victorian novel, The Warden by Anthony Trollope. This is a Friedrich pick, and I'm going to let him talk about it in just a minute. What I'm going to do first, though, as always, is to uh, give you a little bit of a plot summary. So The Warden is the story of a man named Septimus Harding, who's a minister in the Church of England. And he is not only a minister of a church, but he's been given this uh, wardenship, and he's in charge of a basically a retirement home for old men in the town that where he lives. And from this, he makes a good bit of money each year. It's a very easy job, and he gets a lot of money for it. And these 12 old men who live there are, are all kind of poorer old men, and they're given enough to live on, and they have a decent living, but they're not getting the money from the investments that have been made in this um, many centuries before, like maybe they should be. And so the conflict of the book is between Harding and, on the one hand, this young man named John Bold, who wants to reform things and get the money in the right hands. Bold is um, also romantically interested in Harding's daughter, of course, so we have the, the marriage plot going on. And then on the other side is the warden's son-in-law, Archdeacon Grantley, who is um, basically runs the diocese and does not want to ever let go of any advantage that the Church of England has over anything. And so he he's very forcefully demanding that Harding stay in his place. Harding, meanwhile, is kind of tortured by the idea that he may not be doing the right thing. And so the book is is very much about the internal struggle of Harding as he tries to figure out what is the right thing to do. And it's also about that external struggle between these these various forces who want to, to push him in one direction or another. It is in, in many ways a classic Victorian novel, but, but in other ways very different than other Victorian novels. So we're going to explore some of that today. I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich to talk a little bit about why he chose this book for us. Thanks, Soren. Yeah, that was a nice apt summary, too. I think one of the reasons I picked this is because, well, it's short enough to read. For Victorian novels, that's important. Um, it's also part of a subgenre or a type of book that I appreciate from the 19th century, which I'm making up right now, which is the inaugurating book of a longer series that maybe wasn't necessarily intended to be the inaugurating book of a longer series or or like character tradition so i'm thinking uh, of another book first that i really love arthur conan doyle's the sign of four and one of the reasons i love it is that it's it's not like a sherlock holmes story that's deeply uh into his career it's not like mm -hmm. we know sherlock holmes as a character and we're coming to sherlock holmes as a character with expectations although of course as readers we are but it's being written as sort of a test by the author of some of this new character and i the warden is the first uh, in Trollope's well-known Chronicles of Barsetshire, which, if you're a fan of the BBC, would be called Barchester Chronicles. And he also wrote another series, he, and he wrote you know, dozens and dozens of novels. And this is an early novel. I think it's his fourth novel. And so I, I'm, I am interested in it because it's setting up the framework of this world. 
Barsetshire, this world of clergymen and lay people coming into conflict, uh, social conflict um, and interpersonal conflict, but it doesn't have the sort of plan around it that the later novels in this series do. Another reason I selected it, maybe the main reason, is that it's just a really beautiful and fascinating book about an individual who has apparently done something wrong in the eyes of certain members of his society that he lives in, but who is not a, at a, in any way really a bad person and, and who's really guided by a respectable moral compass. And it's sort of an inversion in my mind of Victorian novel structure as we see it from like Dickens, where mm-hmm. with Dickens there's, and Dickens gets satirized in this, and we'll talk more about that. Um, with Dickens, it's sort of like there's this problem and he's going to look at the villains and the heroes and then he's going to look at the people who are caught up in the problem, how they're mm-hmm. tortured by the problem or how they're how they profiting from the problem, whatever. Whereas in this one, the problem is it's real, but it's a little contrived and the warden, uh, Septimus Harding, is like a good man who then has to deal with this problem, with mm-hmm. the uh, the increase in the estate's earnings John Hiram's that John John Hiram's will leaves to his discretion and how even though like he has done no he's not committed a sin or something he still wrestles with like well what's the right thing to do now I'm in this situation what do I do it's such a delicately internal novel which I think of as fairly rare among Victorian novels that the the conflict is almost entirely Internal. There are these external forces at play, mm-hmm. but ultimately it comes down to Harding's internal struggle. And it's not, you're right, it's not a case of here is the good and here is the evil. It's the case mm-hmm. of, well, I'm doing something by the letter of the law, yeah. but am I honoring the spirit of what's going on here? And is this, is this as just a situation as it could be? Right. It's not an on-off switch of justice or injustice so much as it is, am I doing the right thing, the most right thing that I could be doing in this situation? The most right thing is a great, great way to say that, yeah. I love this book in part because I think that I relate to Harding <laughs> on a very deep level. <laughs> I see that. <laughs> as, as a character, he's... He's such a wonderful and unlikely protagonist for a novel. He's not, you know, the characters all around him are so loud and brash. I mean, John Bold, it's right there in his name, right? He's a brash reformer. And Archdeacon Grantley, who's just a wonderful character in so many ways, is this kind of big galumphing, like, high church defender, very, very like a crusader, you know, yeah, yeah. except about money, you know, just about money. <laughs> um, and, and he's such a strong character and he like bullies his father-in-law in so many different ways. And Harding mm-hmm. is just this meek, quiet, gentle soul. And all yeah. he wants to do is lead a quiet life, take care of his daughter, and then like perform his church music. That's his great passion. And, and he's such a, he's such a quiet, unassuming character that is not a typical hero of, of really any sort of novel. He's, he's just so meek, really passive in a lot of ways. I'm hard-pressed, like you said, to think of another example of a, of a protagonist like him because he's someone you can easily see in a supporting role, I guess you would say. Uh, you could see him, you could almost see him in an Austin novel, although not quite because he doesn't really have the foibles necessary for that. But you can see him as the clergyman who's, you know, he's chanting the liturgy, He's playing his cello, his violoncello, and he's uh, publishing his one collection of sacred music, right, that he's edited and put out. And he's just, I don't know, he's warm and quiet. It would be maybe two words to describe him. And in the, like, in the traditional sense of a protagonist, like, he's fairly, I guess, dull. Like, he's, placid, he's, yeah. Yeah, very placid. Absolutely. So yeah, he's a he's a fascinating character to to base a, a book around. And I really like this you, you brought up before. In so many ways, this is like an inversion of the typical Victorian novel. Partly because it's so short, it's about two hundred pages in my edition, which mm-hmm. is like scandalously short for a Victorian novel. But also because it does this nice. It's almost like a Rosencrantz and Guildensterning of the Victorian novel, where you know it's sort of typical Victorian novel. You'd expect the tale of John Bold and Harding's daughter, Eleanor, to take center stage and be the main plot, the sort of marriage plot. Can he overcome 
his hesitancies about the, the situation with her father and, you know, proposed to her or whatever. And here, like, those things are disposed of very perfunctorily. And and they're not very they're not given much space in the book and, and, and Harding is not very interested in them compared to this this epic struggle about church funds, right? So it's a it's just it's just a marvelously like to use a word that will come up later um in our in our other podcast, very topsy turvy approach to this Victorian world where it's like about marriage and about social standing and all these things. And and Harding's just not concerned with those things. He he doesn't care about the external trappings. He cares about feeling justified in what he's doing. I agree. That's a great way to say that too. Feeling justified in what he's doing. It's about yeah, self justification. Not even. I mean, it's about justification to your townspeople that you live with and, your, mm-hmm. and to your family, but ultimately about justification to yourself and to your. And I would say to your God, but maybe not necessarily so much in this book. It's such a. It's maybe <laughs> the most secular novel about clergymen ever written. I, um, <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Does the I, uh, word like faith ever appear? Even I don't even yeah. know. Like, it's a yeah. That's another way that it's kind of wonderful. It's like this is a, a novel where two of the three main characters and three of the four main characters are clergymen, mm-hmm. and there's almost no like thought of religion going on here in the oh. in the faith sense. There's very much a sense right, of right, religion right. as a as an operative in the social world. And there's a sense of sincerity, like, can I make my actions line up with a sense of justice? And certainly that has something to do with the church, but it's not a it's not a religious novel in that traditional sense. There's no dark night of the soul here or anything no, like no. that. It's very much, you know, the religious elements are very much socialized in some interesting ways. I think that was one of the, the, the first things that interested me in Trollope when I was reading this the first time a couple years ago. It's... A novel that really, this is going to sound boring to a lot of our listeners, I think, but to me it's interesting. It's a novel that sort of lays out the place of a, what we would say, you could say a lay clergy, right? Like Mm non-monastic clergy, Anglican clergy in a society, like in a place that is interacting with renters and farmers and the newspaper, of course, like all, all of the uh, the debate going on in the newspapers and politics with uh, Abraham Haphazard and showing the clergy people in a way that maybe anticipates and defies an idea of like secularization as totally enmeshed in this world and not at all separate from it. And why, why I say like anticipates it is because they're they're already secularized in some way because they're in the world and they're interacting with everyone in the old sense of secular but they're also not going around having, like you said, dark nights of the soul. You can imagine a version of this novel where Harding prays, at least, <laughs> <laughs> or seeks counsel from someone in a way that's more about, like, I'm I'm conflicted because I I don't think I've done something wrong, but I need to, you know, I need to consult my Bible or consult my priest or some, another priest or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's it's not about that on its face at least it's about like i'm in this social world and i'm moving in it and it has problems that have to do with finance and how do i participate in that in a way that's like you said that's moral and in that way it really stands out to me in that way it sort of is occupying this very odd moment if we're thinking about secularization and what exactly that might mean and there's a lot of different ideas about it in some ways like it points back words in time because in this novel, religion is still something that is, I don't want to say taken for granted, but is so woven into the fabric of the other things in life that it's not disentangled. And so you don't have that sort of self-consciousness about religion that you have maybe in later novels. Like I'm thinking about like, you know, like Graham Greene or something where every like religious thing you're doing is this big choice that you're making, <laughs> right? Harding doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't have a choice about these things, you know, in that same way. And that yeah. doesn't, I, I don't think that, that that means that he's not a, he doesn't have some sort of sincere faith. It's just that it's so bound up in other parts of life. It makes me think a little bit about, oddly, I don't know why, but I think a little bit about about um, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead and thinking mm-hmm. about the ways in which, in a very different setting, that book is pointing at the minister as providing some sort of social binding for a community. And in the same way here, you know, Harding and, and Grantley and the bishop do that as well. It's actually more fraught maybe because there are these 
because they're also agents of the state in this complicated way that you have yes. in England, that you yeah. don't have in America, like you have in, in, in Gilead, right? Um, so it's complicated, and, and that makes things a little bit more uncertain, but there's this interesting sense in which we see Harding's, maybe Harding's ministry in the book that we see most is just being there with the men of the hospital and like being their warden. And what does that mean? Well, it means he he eats dinner with them and he ha- he lets them listen as he plays his cello and he deals with their various complaints and he deals with the various like disputes that, that come up. And he brings his favorite guy in for some port after dinner. And like that's his sort of area of ministry that he's doing in this kind of odd way. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting picture that we're being given of of a different form of religion fitting into social and public life. That's helping me kind of see the religiosity in the novel too, when you're saying that that it's simple and in, in a good way that... I mean, the church hierarchy is not simple, and the financing is not simple, but the the ministry is simple in that, like, if it's looking backward to a world where it's not about personal liberty of conscience or some conscience or something, but you're accepting that religion is part of the community and part of and, the, and as well as the clergy and part of your daily life, and so what does that look like? It's sort of a beautiful, just caretaking that that Harding is doing as a minister, and just to elaborate on what you're saying, he is looking after the 12 beadsmen of Hiram's hospital, these 12 poor old men who were mostly laborers, I think, and who can't really support themselves in their old age, and so they're given sixpence or something, sixpence and and some change. I don't remember I don't remember how much they're earning. That's the crux of the, the conflict, too, is the amount that they get from the estate's right. earnings. But they're getting some amount of money, they're getting meals, they're getting housing, and this is sort of the place where they're uh, supposed to to die in a way that's that's good they're supposed to be in the hospital meaning a place where they live not a place where they're medically cared for and harding is their shepherd who is going to read to them and play his via his uh cello for them playing good old ancient sacred church music um <laughs> none of this new 19th century hymn, hymnal stuff <laughs> and i think that becomes really evident that that sort of just being with your congregants is good or, or a good way to be a minister and, or an important part of being a minister. Where, where that comes through for me is in the end when he has relented his position because he feels it's the right thing to do in this context of the conflict that's going on. And the men who are very old begin to die and, mm-hmm. and, Har- and uh, Trollope reflects on sort of the time they had with Harding as a good leader or master or whatever, and the time they have now when they're dying without him. And it's really heartbreaking that as they begin to die off, they don't have this person to tend to them and play music for them and read to them and drink port with them or have dinner with them. And it, they're worse off because of it. And it's it's a picture of religion that's you can feel. It's about being with people who need you. I just want to touch on that for a minute, um, Friedrich that final scene where he's saying goodbye to the men, because to me, it has very clear resonances with, I mean, it's literally a last supper. Mm. He's there with his 12 men, except one of them's off because he's too sick to come and they're drinking wine together. Right. Mm. And he's saying his farewells and they know it's kind of great be actually, because in this case, there's only one who's been faithful to him. And the others, uh, Mr. Bunce, right? Mr. The wonderful Bunce. name, Mr. Yeah. Bunce. Um, he's the only one who's been faithful to him. And everybody else has betrayed him. And they realize in that moment, oh my gosh, like we just got rid of our only friend in the world. <laughs> like the only person who has cared for us. And of course, like, yes, like you can say, okay, this is like a very sort of paternalistic vision of what's sure. going on here. But it's also true that these are men who have nobody else in their lives. They don't have families. They don't have people mm-hmm. to take care of them. They're too poor to support themselves in their old age. And so there's this spirit of charity that's put in there, even if it's not perfectly executed, right? That we're returning to in this final moment. And it's almost mm-hmm. like a plea for the continuation of a spirit of charity. Yeah, I think that's really, really well sketched in the book. A criticism that's levied at Trollope sometimes is that he's too conservative or... Maybe he's in the rear guard. Uh, as he <laughs> <Yeah. said. laughs> I wonder I like this book. But 
I think one thing that Trollope is doing that's interesting is, you know, you can imagine it's almost like he's anticipating the 20th century and its critical apparatus, uh, everything that we're going to, you know, people are going to do at universities, uh, that they're going to pick up 19th century novels and read economic like justice issues into them and talk mm-hmm. about how they're all about or, or skeptically all not about and should have been about or whatever. They're all about the social ills that need to be remedied or how they're participating in the continuation of those social ills in a way that we need to interrogate ourselves. And I think Trollope is saying, well, what happens when there's a reformer pushing against those social ills in his time and there's someone standing in the way of the remedy of those social ills who in fact is not the worst person in the world or who is not a greedy capitalist or something. He's just a guy. Part of the appeal of this book to me is that, so it's conservative in like a small C sense. So we, so Carl and I talked about this in, in the Brothers Karamazov at the beginning of the season. This sort of temperamental conservatism that suggests that you have to be careful when you're bringing about these like wide sweeping social changes. And it's not because you shouldn't ever change things because you should, like society has to change, has to root out injustice, but you have to be careful when doing it because there's usually one right way to fix something and 40 wrong ways to fix it and make it worse. (laughs) And and that sort of seems to be, if, if there is a dispositional standpoint in this book, it's that, it's that oftentimes the people who think they're coming in to make things better are really just going to screw it up even more. Yeah. But it's also, I think, interestingly, and this is where it gets you know kind of complicated, I think it is, to return to something I said a minute ago, a defense of charity against the idea that what matters is sort of a strictly delineated and mathematical sense of justice. Sure. Because that's, in one sense, is what both of the other characters want. John Bold and Archdeacon Grantley both want to measure and find out exactly where things le- lie mm. and distribute like the exact right amount of money to every single person. And, and so maybe in some ways they're they're like the heroes that we would want today. Like we want them to come in and say like yes, this is well not Archdeacon Grantley, but John Bold is like the hero we want, right? He comes in and he says, "Okay, you're doing this wrong." This is an economic injustice, and we have to remedy it, and we have to redistribute based on all these things. And in the same way, Archdeacon Grantley as a sort of mirror of that is saying, like, no, these are the strict rules. This is how we measure it. This is the letter of the law, and this is what we have to do. And what's missing from both of those accounts is this is a sort of a sense of charity, but also a sense of maybe frenesis of, like, practical judgment mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Harding can bring to the situation because He's actually there in the situation. He is the one who is the warden. And he, in some sense at least, knows what these men need. He's able to provide for their actual needs on the ground. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, I am I, sympathetic to the argument, like sort of the modern argument against this book, which is like, okay, it's very stuffy and it's very, it's maybe too against social reform in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there's also a sort of, I think, a real challenge for us as moderns in this book, which is, the on the ground judgments that have to be made are not always the same as a sort of by the book figuring out from up top. And and, and so I think that there's a real value in, in appreciating that, even as we can, you know, recognize Trollope's limitations or, or you know, the limitations of his sympathy or whatever. And the up top in that too is sort of vague and and also itself self interested and mm-hmm. Uh, not always looking out, certainly not looking out for the beadsman at Hiram's hospital, right? Because when <laughs> yeah, yep. when when Bold is thinking about recanting his complaint and stopping the lawsuit, he goes to Palm Towers at the Jupiter, which is like the Times in London, and he's asking Tom Towers to stop the articles that are coming out, dec- like that are decrying Harding's greed or something. And Tom Towers is like, hey, this is already in in motion and I can't stop it because now other people are writing about it and you've got Thomas Carlyle and Charles Dickens writing about her Dr. Pessimus Anticant and Mr. Popular Sentiment writing about it and Sir Abraham Haphazard can hardly be troubled about it because they're trying to clog up the Irish vote at uh, <laughs> yes. the Commons right with like a bill that's going <laughs> to per- force them to search nuns bodies for uh, <laughs> signs of I don't even remember what right yeah popery I think yeah, yeah I think so <laughs> And so there's all these like 
appeals to authority, but the authority, whether it's a popular authority of the press or a governmental authority, aren't interested in what's going on in Barchester. And the idea that, like Soren is saying, that today we are interested in a bold, a figure who comes along and, and sort of talks about the millionaires and the billionaires like Bernie and maybe does a little redistributing uh, that we're poorly in need of. And in this world, then maybe we're saying you can't rely on the charity of individuals because we need a little more than that. Um, Mm -hmm. We need the state to do some things. In this novel, I think Soren's pointing out something really important that the guy on the ground uh, who sees the beadsman every day knows what they need and that charity Mm -hmm. is not a bad thing (laughs) by any means. It's certainly the 19th century too is a time when charity and philanthropy grew exponentially and were also criticized a lot because of the the way it was deployed or whatever but we see it in action and know that it's good and and you know that's that's maybe a religious part of the novel too is that we see acts of charity and know they're good it doesn't it doesn't matter what the context is an act of charity is a good thing and this is you know in that sense i don't think that this book is like we, we can't really map it onto the politics of today so it's not like a conservative novel or a certainly like a libertarian novel or something like that. It's really more about this sort of localist approach to things, right? Sure. Go with the approach that works in your, you know, kind of in your community. And how do you make that work? And what are the real costs of each decision as we go on? And that's sort of the the mistake that both Grantley and Bold make is they want to turn this somehow into a national issue. Bold, yeah. you know, goes to the newspapers and he wants to... And he has a sort of eye of like reforming everything in Barchester, right? And on on the other hand, Grantley is very concerned because there's these other cases around England where, where which are presented to us as being very much more clear cut cases of like the church doing some really terrible things with their money, and he wants to use this case as sort of like a wedge against those other cases and stand up for the church in every every situation, right? Whereas for Harding, it's really about like what is going on in this particular situation. Like, am I doing the right thing or am I not doing the right thing? And, and so it's a very much a more, more a localist approach to things and, and a, a practical judgment on the ground of what these people need. You might say it's a parochial novel in defensive parochialism. Like, it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, it's important to remember, too, it's the 1850s, right? And yeah, it's a time, certainly, of um, a problem of pluralism in the, in the sense of priests or holding multiple positions at different churches and, mm-hmm. and earning more because of that, but then not fulfilling their duties enough. Mm-hmm. But it's also the time, a time of uh, exploding world news coming in to, through the wire to London and the railroad obviously has exploded and trade and, and war are starting to span the globe empire, mm-hmm. obviously. And every problem begins to you know, be extrapolated to this global or at least national problem like like Soren was saying, and in some ways that's reminiscent of, we can't map the politics, but in the feeling of that is reminiscent of today and that if you're on Twitter or something, there's people joke about the main character of Twitter every day or something. There, there's mm-hmm. like one story or a few stories and the local newspapers of America have of course been gutted and destroyed and, uh, right. and they just kind of all suck stories from maybe one major source every day to fill their pages. And we have the sense that I don't want to get too gloomy doomy. We're living in like the monoculture or whatever. But this is a book that's sort of pulling away from that and saying, we're going to stick with Barchester. We're going to stick with this place and stick with its problems. And when they go to London to try and appeal to authority or go outside of that, which is rare, well, you can lose sight of that. It's a, it's a really is a defense of like the particularity of places, which is oftentimes flattened out. And that's a good point about the explosion of, News, which of course you know has has advantages too, but can also end up, and I think certainly in this book, can end up being a distraction from what the the problems actually are that the characters are facing. Let's um, talk about some other stuff now because there's so much going on in this book. One thing that I really like that's a small sort of subplot in the book, but I but is really nice is the friendship between. Septimus Harding and the bishop. To fully flesh this out here, it's kind of a weird situation. So Septimus Harding is an old friend of the Bishop of Barchester. The Bishop of Barchester happens to be the father of Archdeacon Grantley. So Archdeacon Grantley, who's like the sort of the second in command of the diocese, is the son of the bishop and the son-in-law of Septimus Harding, the warden. But he's really the one who's running the show in the diocese. Um, There's this wonderful remark that Trollope makes, and he says, in most dioceses, 
you have a bishop who's active and an archdeacon who doesn't do anything, or it's the reverse. And in this case, it's the reverse. It's <laughs> the archdeacon's doing everything, and the bishop's not. He can just kind of sit back and relax a little bit. And and it's really just a touching and tender friendship between these two men who just want to be around each other. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, at the end, <laughs> there's this wonderful thing where the bishop wants Harding to come and eat dinner with him every day, and they just hang out from like 3 to 10 o'clock. And if it says if he doesn't come, Harding doesn't come to have dinner with him, the bishop's basically like sulking. And, and he, he goes to bed an dinner. hour before he's <laughs> supposed to. <laughs> yeah, he goes to bed early and just doesn't want to eat his dinner, and um, right? Because he's so dependent on that friend. And it's one of the, there's just these like, such a tender friendship between these two men who are basically both, I guess, you know, we would call them both like beta males, where, whereas Archdeacon Grantley is very much an alpha male. And they're, they're just like, they just want to hang out together and like be together and be friends and like, you know, and just be in each other's company and enjoy each other. And mm-hmm. that's important in the book because Harding has trouble feeling like people don't understand his emotional states. Mm. And certainly Archdeacon Grantley doesn't and John Bold doesn't. And the two people who do are Eleanor, his daughter, mm. and the bishop. They, they have this particular bond of sympathy with him. And that's a kind of an important concept, I think, for Harding is this idea of sympathy being built between people and people really understanding what it is he's getting at. And it's kind of funny because the bishop is constrained externally because Archdeacon Grantley is always there and he's always butting his nose into things. But internally he has a very strong understanding of what's motivating Harding Harding mm-hmm. and he's he's kind of there to support him and give him that emotional foundation that he needs for his life i wonder if one of the 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 things that makes that friendship possible novelistically for us is something you pointed out earlier soren which is that it's not following the marriage plot thread that we might expect of an interesting character who changes like john bold or Eleanor, who's a sweet and like super supportive daughter, it doesn't follow that thread. It has this, like you were saying, this more timid man at its core. And so, mm-hmm. if he's at its core, what are the relationships that we we see emerge in the novel? And one is obviously father and daughter, and then it's him being sort of tossed about by these more vocal or alpha forces, like mm-hmm. Archdeacon Grantley, who they have a, a lot of opinions that they want to share right and so yeah you see him settling in with his good man bunts one of the beadsmen or with the bishop and it's a relationship that's more about being in each other's company and there's not a lot depicted of that in the novel but it's also i think rare to see that in a novel like this or in a novel of this time i mean that friendship as opposed to a a more familiar uh, archetypal rivalry or relationship love relationship or something Mm -hmm. like that part of it also i wonder if part of it has to do with the age of the characters in that this is one of these rare novels that's a sort of gerontocratic novel right it's a novel of old i mean harding's not super old but he's like about 60 or so right and the bishop's a little bit older than he is Mm -hmm. and so it's this it's very much a novel of old age in a lot of ways and so and you see those younger characters get kind of pushed aside the only children in the novel are the terrible children of archdeacon grantley (laughs) who at first shine are so attractive and then they're and then are just like awful (laughs) yes they're just awful awful children and so it's it is very much a novel you know and i think about that and of course I mean, I'm trading in some stereotypes here, but right, you you kind of think of like old age as this time of simply being present. I think about when I was when my grandparents were getting older and right before they died, so much of the of being with them was simply being there and having a mm-hmm. presence there. And you didn't, you know, there wasn't anything big and exciting going on. There wasn't any even any particularly like old conversations or anything you know it was just simply sitting there and being there and being in each other's presence that that brought that that comfort to them and that sense of companionship which is really difficult to capture in a novel obviously right there's a reason that we gravitate towards novels of big action or or at the very least of like big debate right and things like that loquacity or something loquacity absolutely (laughs) it's hard to depict silence in a novel and and comfort and just presence in a novel. But but he does it well. I like that bit of autobiography too, because I've I felt that this year, especially not to get too outside the, the novel, but with COVID and everything, I remember going through some stuff earlier this year, last year, and 
talking to my brother about it and, and we were just like, we don't live in the same city and saying part of what I would do to help comfort you in this time of loss or whatever was going on would be to just be there and like bring you some dinner or mm-hmm. like, Hey, let's go grab a beer. And mm-hmm. you know how much you talk about the thing that you're worried about that, that obviously would come up, but how much you're just there kind of hanging mm-hmm. out. That's the real comfort, right? Is you're not alone. You're with someone. And obviously we've all felt that to some degree this year, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's not something that's easily depicted, even in a novel that we would consider more modern and insular or uh, interior, right? Like if we're thinking mm-hmm. about novels of great interiority, it's still hard to depict just being with someone. And in movies, I can think of a few moments where that happens. And that's something that a film does really, that films can do really well of mm-hmm. showing characters just kind of sitting at a bar together and, it doesn't ha- you don't have to have big things happening to show that there's a camaraderie in that. Can we turn to one passage in particular? I want to just lay out something that, that, that Trollope does so well in this book, which is the precision, the delicate precision with which he explores what particularly the situation is here. And, and so I'm going to go to a, a part re- relatively early in the novel as Harding is thinking about the situation of this property, whether he's receiving the money that he shouldn't be receiving, but he's re- receiving too much of a salary for what he's doing here at the, the hospital. We kind of You get his internal thoughts here somewhat indirectly. He's been thinking through how he's like, maybe he's conforming to what's the letter of the law that's there. Mm-hmm. And he says, but somehow these arguments, though they seemed logical, were not satisfactory. Was John Hiram's will fairly carried out? That was the true question. And if not, Was it not his especial duty to see that this was done? His especial duty, whatever injury it might do to his order, however ill such duty might be received by his patron and his friends. At the idea of his friends, his mind turned unhappily to his son-in-law. He knew well how strongly he would be supported by Dr. Grantley if he could bring himself to put his case into the archdeacon's hands and allow him to fight the battle. But he knew also that he would find no sympathy there for his doubts, no friendly feeling, no inward comfort. Dr. Grantley would be ready enough to take up his cudgel against all comers on behalf of the church militant, but he would do so on the distasteful ground of the church's infallibility. Such a contest would give no comfort to Mr. Harding's doubts. He was not so anxious to prove himself right as to be so. And I love that for the the subtle ways in which Trollope is giving us a sense of what matters to Harding and also the the, the lack of comfort that he's going to find in these other people, and particularly Dr. Grantley. There's this wonderful phrase here in, in the way that he's writing that, that I think is, is sort of mirroring, uh, gradually getting closer and closer to the heart of the matter, where he says, he knew also that he would find no sympathy there, that's in Dr. Grantley's hands, he would find no sympathy there for his doubts, no friendly feeling, no inward comfort. And what I like about that phrase is you start out in the sort of big external world, no sympathy for his doubts. And sympathy for doubts is like something you can imagine having for just about anybody in the world, Mm -hmm. right? I have sympathy for your doubts in this situation. But then it moves to something a little closer in, which is no friendly feeling, which is this sort of sense of bond between people and it's something that you only have really with with friends right obviously and then you get even narrower in towards no inward comfort and that's really what harding craves is this sense of being understood and being comforted inwardly that he is making the right decision mm-hmm. and he's, he doesn't get that from grant he he gets it somewhat from eleanor and somewhat from the bishop but ultimately he's not interested in this external battle which is what Dr. Grantley's good for, and he is, and, and Trollope's really good at d- kind of displaying both sides of Dr. Grantley, right? He's incredibly good at organizing things, right? He's a little bit like Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, right? <laughs> he's really good at organizing and like pushing people around, and Harding is more like, I don't know, he's like some weird Pooh-Eeyore combo or something. Like, he's heavily internalized, he's a little bit gloomy like Eeyore, but he's also like, he cares about that sense of companionship and that mm-hmm. sense of he cares about feeling like he's in the right and knowing he's doing the right thing. And Grantley can't access that. He's too externalized. He can't access the the inner world 
that's going on underneath the surface of this externally very placid man. That's a beautiful reading to take us from the outward closer and closer to Harding's inner life. And in some ways, it's like a really concise version, Soren, of something you just summarized, a really concise version of stuff that happens in like George Eliot novels Hmm. where we really sit with the inner feelings of a person through the narrator and the narrator is going to bring us closer and closer to their thoughts not because the narrator is like I know everything about what they're thinking and I'm going to show it to you but because to actually talk about like what a person cares about or deeply feels it requires this sort of like repetitious thinking about what what are they thinking? And I'm exploring that as a writer as I'm writing it and trying to figure out what they're thinking. And that was a great taking us in from like, it's not about having sympathy, which is common. It's not about having feeling, which Cranley can't give him. And it's, it's, it's about the, the feeling of comfort that you have in doing the right thing. Right. And mm-hmm. Grantley, Grantley is someone who is like, uh, not to go inside baseball is like a Wilberforce uh, Samuel Wilberforce, not William Wilberforce, who, who's going to defend the church no matter what. And mm-hmm. he can win this fight for the church, and he knows he can. And Harding knows he can. And if so, if this is a novel where we're only interested in uh, one side prevailing, then, yeah, you hand the reins over to Archdeacon Grantley, and he goes and wins it uh, for the home mm-hmm. team. Yeah, But it's not about that, like you were saying. It's about being able to like live with your self your choices and in a way that's like you were pointing pointing out importantly Elliot does stuff like that but it's this is so concise and that's really satisfying especially for someone who's notoriously prolific and writes dozens of novels and is notorious for inventing a uh, like a lap holder for his writing pad so that he can keep writing on the train to get to his x amount of words per day he just produces novels like crazy and yet the writing here is as Soren is pointing us to uh, bringing us to something really deep about how a person feels or thinks in a very concise and ordered, ordered way. Satisfying. It's very satisfying. Well, speaking of, of maybe garrulousness or verbosity (laughs) um, or long windedness, do you want to talk a little bit about this wonderful, I think wonderful section, maybe it's controversial somewhat um, near, near the end of the book where, so, so we get, we get exposed to these two characters who are writing for the newspaper, the Jupiter, you have Dr. Pessimist Anticant and Mr. Popular Sentiment, who are both producing writings about this case. And what emerges as readers from that is that neither has any idea what they're talking about, right? And they don't have a solution to what's going on, and they all they can do is sort of exaggerate and miss the mark. Um, so obviously this is highly satirical on Trollope's part. I'm going to let you, as our, as our resident Victorian expert, explain briefly about who these two are and then what you think Trollope's trying to accomplish here with this sort of it's an interesting um, use of sort of interpolated texts into the novel because you get some of Dr. Anticant's philosophy and then you get some a, 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 a smidgen of Mr. Popular Sentiment's novel The Alms House which is all about this highly caricaturized version of Mr. Harding um, but t- tell us what you think is going on in this section sure Dr. Pessimus Antikant is said to be a learned reader of German. He studied in Germany, right? Or I guess Prussia at the time and read all of the great German idealists and romantics and, uh, and, you know, was fluent in Hegel, Kant and everyone like that. And he's going to bring those ideas back to Britain in the newspaper. And he's going to do it to show us what's wrong with our times. He's a critic of the times, right? Not the newspaper, but uh, of the era, I should say. And, Everything that he sees is something that, per, per Trollope, can be broken down into a social ill that is like having to do with the character of the nation. He's satirizing uh, Thomas Carlyle, who was a reader of German and who was a social critic of the time. And then Mr. Popular Sentiment is coming at it from the fictional side and presenting heroes and villains in this story, right? And the villain of the almshouse is a total misrepresentation of Harding. It's not Harding at all, right? He doesn't know Harding. It's this sort of usurious, greedy person who's taking advantage of the income. And this is a satirization of Dickens. With Carlyle, we get Trollope's sort of pastiche of his writing style. It's very uh, erudite and dense and uh, (laughs) very different from the pages in which it's situated. 
And then with the Dickens satire, we get more of a statement about what it, why it's here from Trollope. He's sort of contrasting his style with Dickens. With Dickens, he's saying there's good and there's bad. But for Trollope, he's saying there's no good that's like unalloyed, right? And there's no evil that doesn't have a glint of of something good in it or good intentions. And that the real world we live in is not like this. I think one thing that he's doing in presenting these two approaches to the problem of the income is he's sort of staking a claim for his novel as a superior realism. Yes. It's not the, I mean, Carlyle's not much of a novelist as in he, he writes some novels, but they're deeply satirical and deeply elusive. Right. And mm-hmm. Dickens is the novelist par excellence of the time and his early novels at the very least. And I think maybe this, you know, it's coming in the 1850s. So it's, he's turning a corner a little bit, but his early novels do follow that pattern that, Trollope is delineating here of of a good, good person and a bad, bad person. And I think by the time he's writing in the late 1850s and early 1860s, Dickens is a little more complicated than that. Even his earlier stuff is more complicated. But what Trollope is sort of staking a claim to a realism that's quieter and that isn't so tangled up in uh, grand movements on the one hand or grand philosophical movements on the other hand. It's not about pointing out some great grand ill in our society. And it's not about presenting characters who are going to become part of the national pantheon. It's about real people. And I think that's part of why these two are in here. Can I read two quotes here? These are both from the same chapter where he's dealing with these two characters. Um, This first one is describing, you know, talking about Dr. Pessimist Anticant. Trollope has has this to say about him. Dr. Pessimist Anticant was a Scotchman who had passed a great portion of his early days in Germany. He had studied there with much effect, and had learned to look with German subtlety into the root of things, and to examine for himself their intrinsic worth and worthlessness. No man ever resolved more bravely than he to accept as good nothing that was evil, to banish from him as evil nothing that was good. Tis a pity that he should not have recognized the fact that in this world no good is unalloyed, and that there is but little evil that has not in it some seed of what is goodly. And then flipping over to his description of, of Mr. Popular Sentiment, uh, he says this, Mr. Sentiment is certainly a very powerful man, and perhaps not the less so that his good poor people are so very good, his hard rich people so very hard, and the genuinely honest so very honest. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say, this is a, this is a great burn here. Perhaps, however, Mr. Sentiment's great attraction is in his second-rate characters. Mm. If his heroes and heroines walk upon stilts as heroes and heroines, I fear ever must their attendant satellites are as natural as though one met them in the street. They walk and talk like men and women and live among our friends a rattling, lively life. And so he's getting at something here, right, which is that Dickens is really good when he's talking about the minor characters. Mm -hmm. And he's really bad, Trollope says, and whether this is... completely fair or not, right? There is something to this critique that in Dickens, the good characters, especially the good poor characters, are so very good. And the rich characters, the hard rich characters are so very hard. And and he's like, you know, no, you've got to let them live and be real people. And he says like the second rate characters here, which by which he means like the secondary characters in the novels are like that. They're real people. But it's Dickens' heroes and heroines and villains that don't live up to that and the same with Carlyle he's saying like he's trying to investigate and root out the good and the evil and he doesn't realize that in this life those two things are always bound together mm-hmm. right there there's no good that's unalloyed with evil and there's no there's nobody that doesn't have some seed of goodness in them and that seems to be you know the closest I can find in this novel to an artistic statement on Trollope's part it is this idea that he wants to create these characters who are this mixture of things and that he doesn't want this extremity of character but he wants characters that live and breathe and walk among us interestingly not long after this novel came out George Eliot wrote an anonymous uh, essay called the natural history of German life which is sort of one of her statements on realism and in that she says Dickens is a great artist of external traits Someone who, <laughs> in his secondary characters in particular, they're so memorable. Trollope refers to Bucket and Mrs. Gamp, or you know, pick any character out of 
great expectations, right? They're all memorable. Right. But Eliot's criticism is that they lack psychological depth. And so it's interesting that each of these novelists who are sort of asserting their own authority as the real realists <laughs> take that criticism to level at him. This is a pro-Dickens podcast. Absolutely. Said. <laughs> we love Dickens here. At least the two of us do. <laughs> two out of three. Ain't bad, I won't though. speak on Carl's behalf, but um, we do love Dickens. But it, but it is interesting to see how other novelists of the time are sort of responding to him. And, you know, he is the big target in, in yeah. some ways. And so it's... You take down the big fish, but and you define yourself against Dickens in, in so many ways here. And, that, yeah. and that's, I think, part of what Trollope's doing here. To me, though, this is also a very interesting depiction of the way that the press is working. And, and we don't have to spend too much time with this, but it is interesting. This seems to be in the air at this time. It's about seven years before this that Kierkegaard writes his great essay, The Present Age, which is all about the newspapers and the ways in which they level people, come and, like, you know, run people into the ground and there's sort of an element of that here with what happens to harding right in the same way he's talking about leveling there's a sort of a flattening that happens here because of the newspapers in mm -hmm. that harding is no longer an actual person he just becomes this stand-in for like everything that's evil about the church of england which i think trollope recognizes like there's a lot of truth in the fact that like the church of england is doing some really terrible things regarding money at this time period but Harding is not a representative of that. At all, no. I think the flat, flattening and leveling are good terms, too, because if we're a podcast of philosophy and uh, literature, right, that we're hosting right now, and Dr. Pessimist Antikant is coming at the issue from a side of a philosopher in some respects, mm -hmm. and then Dickens is coming at it from the side of a novelist, but a popular novelist and, and to get away from Dickens and Carlyle for a second though, like to get back to what you were saying about Tom Towers and the Jupiter or the times criticizing them, uh, criticizing Harding for his part in this and leveling him and flattening him. It seems like part of the project of the warden is to sort of return that three dimensionality and saying the novel is the thing that can do this. And that's why there are critiques of other novelists because it's about doing it in a way that shows the humanity of someone, not that shows a social ill in a way that's really satisfying or that shows a movement that includes memorable characters of, of varying depth. But if he sort of grants all of these people a, a depth in some way, even minor characters like Bunce or Bell, the old man who dies, or the, the beadsmen who go along with Bold and begin to sort of say, why, why don't we get 100 pounds instead of our, our shillings and pence or whatever? they have regrets and doubts about what they're doing. And that three-dimensionality seems like a, a counter to the flattening or leveling of the newspaper. I guess you could say that the temptation of the newspaper, of this world, goes both toward flattening of the newspaper and toward sort of aggrandizement as a character and making yourself into a character, a hero or something like that. And Harding just doesn't do that. Harding is not... Trollope doesn't turn Harding into a hero, and Harding doesn't turn himself into a hero. Harding remains himself, and so he doesn't get pulled in either of those directions that the age might demand of him. He doesn't allow himself to be a, a, a segment in a movement. He doesn't allow himself to think of himself as a grand character. He is just who he is. And he is, you know, we've talked a lot about his good qualities, but he does, he is flawed, and he, you know, part of what, in the end, what motivates him is this maybe a, a heightened sense of public shame, right? Mm -hmm. And that he almost loses sight for a little bit of like the idea that was driving him at first, which is like, am I doing the right thing or not? And it becomes about like, people are saying bad things about me and I can't take, and like false bad things about me and I don't want to take, I can't, I want to get out of this situation so I don't have to deal with it. So one way in which he does this, this sort of, um, Restoring depth to characters is at the end of the book, he's sort of tackling, he's, he's winding everything up and he wants to come back to the character of Archdeacon Grantley because Grantley has been this throughout the book, both an intimidating figure for Harding and also, you know, a sort of pretty ridiculous figure in a lot of ways. Um, he's over the top. He cares so much about defending the church. But this is sort of the last, one of the last words we get about Archdeacon Grantley. This is what Trollope says. We fear that he is represented in these pages as being worse than he is. But we have had to do with his foibles and not with his virtues. We have only seen, seen only the weak side of the man and have lacked the opportunity of bringing him forward on his strong ground. 
that he is a man somewhat too fond of his own way, and not sufficiently scrupulous in his manner of achieving it, his best friends cannot deny. That he is bigoted in favor not so much of his doctrines as of his cloth is also true. And it is true that the possession of a large income is a desire that sits near his heart. Nevertheless, the archdeacon is a gentleman and a man of conscience. He spends his money liberally and does the work he has to do with the best of his ability. He improves the tone of society of those among whom he lives. His aspirations are of a healthy, if not of the highest, kind. <laughs> Though never an austere man, he upholds propriety of conduct both by example and by precept. He is generous to the poor and hospitable to the rich. In manners of religion he is sincere and yet no Pharisee. He is in earnest and yet no fanatic. On the whole, the Archdeacon of Barchester is a man doing more good than harm. A man to be furthered and supported, though perhaps also to be controlled, <laughs> right? And it's this wonderful depiction, right, of, of a man who's come across, you know, and left a very bad impression in a lot of ways in the novel for who he is. And, and, and Trollope wants to resuscitate him a little bit and say, like, he has all of these good qualities, too. We, we've had to deal with him here in his bad aspects, but he's not defined in the end by his bad characteristics. He has these good characteristics as well. Um, and, I, and I like that about Trollope, that he, he's willing here to be fair to almost every character in the book. Maybe not Dr. Pessimus Anticat and Mr. Popular Sentiment, but all of the real characters in the book are given space to be that mixture of good and evil that he sets out to, 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 to create. I think that's why this is a great selection, too, uh, if we're talking about books from Trollope's greater bibliography. You know, some of his later stuff, thinking of the way we live now, has villains that's that are not necessarily resuscitated as you said or redeemed in any way and i think it's part of the project of the warden as soren's pointed out to show everyone as they are and so like to as a person and so he has to he's probably rereading his draft of this at some point trollope and saying well i have to give grantley a little bit more than i've given him because i haven't <laughs> given him enough and maybe in his later novels he doesn't always do that but the th sort of theme of this book is partly a, about allowing people to be three-dimensional, even if they're not grand, right? And so yeah. it's important that you brought us to that. It's good that you brought and, us to that. And it's kind of a fun twist. At the very end, you learn that Dr. Grantley and John Bold actually become friends once yeah. Eleanor and John Bold get married. <laughs> the, you know, their, their, their wives are sisters, so they have to interact yeah. with each other to some degree. But but they also seem to genuinely become friends. And, they, and it's sort of suggested that maybe they work at, to balance each other out a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> to work on each other's rough edges and sort of soften them a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a nice suggestion that, that even two, two very different people or people who are similar, but in opposite directions can, mm -hmm. can still find a basis for a relationship and to help improve each other even as people. So I like that. We will stop for now. Thank you for, for being with us uh, for this. We've really enjoyed talking about the warden. We are going to very soon record a patrons-only episode tied to this book somewhat loosely, um, which is a, a movie podcast about Mike Lee's wonderful 1999 film Topsy Turvy, which is related insofar as it's Victorian set, uh, but we're rolling with it. It's a great it's pretty movie. pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but we're very interested in talking about it and, and thinking about it. Um, so that's going to be available up for, for patrons only on our Patreon which is patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov if you want access to that and a bunch of other really wonderful movie pods that we've done um, over the course of this season. We also want you to um, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash the readers Karamazov at the readers K on Twitter. You, you'll want to follow us because we're going to start to announce some information about next season. As I said, we're taking a, about a two month break here. We'll be back and we're going to try to announce in advance a lot of the things that we're doing so that you have a, a, maybe a better chance of following along and um, reading along with us and, and maybe participating through through email questions. So you can email at us, uh, thereaderscaramasaf at gmail.com or, or on Twitter or Facebook to send in your questions about these books as we read through them. But we're very thankful for everybody who's joined us. We've been very happy with the sort of turnout online so far. We're yeah. hoping to build even more of an audience. So if you know, you know, you know of anybody who likes literature, who likes philosophy, tell them about our pod. Tell them to give us a listen. Um, we'd really appreciate it. You can always, of course, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well. Every little bit helps. 
But until next season, we will let Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, those Russians. We're just hanging out here. They're just hanging out. Uh... Depict that in a novel. Ha, ha, ha.